take you to the words found in Philippians chapter 1. And we will be looking at um, verses 18 through 26. Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Again, Father, we do recognize that we are desperate for your grace. And we recognize that it is through your word and it is through prayer and it's through fellowship together, even as we are now gathered, that you have designed to grow us, to strengthen us, to help us progress in the faith and to progress in joy. And so my longing, Father, is that you would use this time, the next uh, 45 minutes, and afterwards as we're gathered together as a body of believers to help us progress in the faith and to instill within us joy and to direct us to know how we need to repent, how we need to think differently, how we need to Uh, be built up and encouraged. Lord, you know all the needs of every person here. And I pray that you would minister to their needs. And especially if there's anyone here who does not yet know you, that you would help them see the hope that is available to them in the gospel, what Jesus Christ offers them. And Lord, again, all of that, can only be accomplished if you choose to work. And so we ask that you would. In Christ's name, amen. What brings you joy? And ask that question uh, because there's a lot, you know, obviously there's relative joy that we experience. But I'm not talking about just the things that bring you happiness from time to time. Like, when was the last time that you were moved on account of joy to tears? Or you heard something, or you witnessed something that so moved you, your heart, you just felt your heart welling up inside and you just couldn't wait to sing. That's the kind of joy I'm talking about. And ask that question, because that's the state of Paul as he's writing this letter to the Philippians. And that's why the pattern of 
joy keeps coming up. And that's really a central theme in today's passage that I just read. And this week we'll see how he rejoices because he's confident he will be delivered. Last week we noted that Paul was rejoicing because he saw that even though he had been imprisoned, he was seeing the gospel continue to advance. And so that brought him joy. Now, as he looks at his circumstances, he's rejoicing because he's confident that God is going to work through the Philippians prayers and through the work of the spirit. But even if he wasn't going to be delivered, he still rejoices because no matter what happens, he knows he's going to honor Christ. And even if he dies, even that offers something to rejoice in because then he's going to be with Christ. And so there's really three points in the outline of today's passage. First of all, he has confidence that he'd be delivered. Then he mentions the confidence that he will not be ashamed. And then thirdly, he describes, uh, it kind of ties to that second point, the fact that he's constrained to both stay and serve the Philippians and other churches, as well as constrained to want to depart and be with Christ. Let's look first at his confidence in his deliverance. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, it's remarkable to note what the means of his deliverance is, at least what he expects it to be. The prayers of the Philippians and the help of the Spirit. That's what's going to account for his deliverance. He doesn't have faith of the heart or just a self-assured confidence that he's just going to be able to grit his teeth and work through it and plot ahead in his own strategies. He's confident, confident that his deliverance is going to be accomplished through the power of the Spirit. His friends are going to pray for him and the Spirit is then going to help. The word he uses here for prayer actually means to plead or to beg such as what a homeless person might do, or a person who's desperate for food. It implies a sense of urgency. And the first thing this tells us is how much the Philippians cared about Paul. They were burdened enough by Paul's circumstances of being imprisoned that they pled for his release. They took the time to go before God and pour out their hearts, pleading that God might work to have him released. And, and this, again, this pleading reminded me, as I was studying this, of two of the wives, of the wives of two of my favorite uh, heroes. One, John Bunyan, and the other, Adoniram Judson. John Bunyan's wife, Elizabeth Bunyan, was uh, married to him, uh, and after a year after their marriage... He was imprisoned, and he ended up being imprisoned for 12 years, actually. And Elizabeth, after his imprisonment, went to the authorities to plead for her husband's release. And the authorities said, is he going to stop preaching? And Bunyan's biographer records the conversation. My Lord, he dares not leave off preaching as long as he can speak. 
Well, what's the need of talking? There is need for this, my Lord, for I have four small children that cannot help themselves, one of which is blind, and we have nothing to live upon but the charity of good people. Matthew Hale, with pity, asks if she really has four children being so young. My Lord, I am but mother-in-law to them, having not been married to him only not even full two years. Indeed, I was with child when my husband was first apprehended, but being young and unaccustomed to such things and being swayed at the news, I fell into labor and so continued for eight days and then was delivered. But my child died. Hale was moved, but the other judges were hardened and spoke against him. He's a mere tinker. Yes, and because he's a tinker and a poor man, therefore he is despised and cannot have justice. One Mr. Chester, enraged, said that Bunyan will just go and preach and do as he wishes. He preaches nothing but the word of God, she says. Another Mr. Twisden, in a rage, he runneth up and down and doeth harm. No, my Lord, it's not so. God has owned him and done much good by him. The angry man, his doctrine is the doctrine of the devil. She replied, my Lord, when the righteous judge shall appear, it will be known that his doctrine is not the doctrine of the devil. And then Bunyan's biographer comments, Elizabeth Bunyan was simply a peasant woman. Could she have spoken with more dignity if she were crowned a queen? And then also is thought of Anne Judson, who likewise, after she had been serving with her husband many years uh, in Burma, her husband was imprisoned because the British went to war against um, the Burmese government and they apprehended him thinking he must be a spy. And every day for the course of a year, she went to every authority she knew of with the, and heard of that she could possibly plead for in order to plead their release. She went to the city governor, to the treasurer, to the jailers. Even at one point, she got an opportunity to visit the courthouse and to stand before hundreds of people who had no love for foreigners, you can imagine, given the war, and plead for his release. She walked miles every day, gave multiple gifts until she had become absolutely impoverished. And she did all of these things because she wanted to see her husband released. Because she knew how critical she was to him and also the Lord's work. She loved him. They, these wives pled with the authorities because they loved their husbands. And likewise, that's why the Philippians were pleading for Paul. Because they loved him. They wanted to see him released. They knew he had done nothing wrong. And of course, their love is demonstrated in their intercession. That's why Paul has such confidence. It's because he knows they love him and they love the gospel in their pleading for his release. The second thing this verse tells us is that God responds to humble and dependent supplication. He looks upon those who are humble and contrite at heart and who tremble at his word. We saw that in Isaiah 66. God wants us to pray. But we should not expect our prayers to be answered if we're living in pride or in the presumption of our own hearts. This is why Peter tells husbands not to expect their prayers to be answered 
if they're not living with their wives in an understanding way. Neither will God listen to the prayers of those who act in presumption and pride. In Deuteronomy, Moses recounts what happened um, when they, the Israelites fought against the Amorites. He said, the Lord's words, I spoke to you and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Horma. And you returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. Because of their presumption. God won't answer selfish prayers either. As he says in James, you ask and do not receive because you ask to spend it on your pleasures. You're thinking for yourself, not for the kingdom. Not in love for others or for Christ. Nor will he regard the prayers of the unrepentant. As David said, if I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not hear me. So there are, there are things that actually hinder our prayers from being answered. God is not mocked. We can't presume to live in unrepentant sin and then think that he's going to bless us at every request that we give him. But the contrast is also true. When we ask in humble dependence, this presses him to respond. King Josiah, as he heard the law being read, he was moved. And notice what it says in 2 Kings 22. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you've heard. Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you've torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Notice how the Lord says, because you have done these things, I've heard you. He's making a point. He's trying to communicate something to us about the, the, the correspondence with the pursuit of our lives and our prayers. He tells the Israelites in 2 Corinthians 7, sorry, 2 Chronicles 7, a well-known passage, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Likewise, he told Daniel that his prayers were heard because he humbled himself. Now, we might automatically assume, well, Daniel is Daniel. Of course, God's going to listen to anything Daniel says. But God goes out of his way and says to, to remark to Daniel, it was because of your humility. You humbled yourself before your God. And because of that, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. Again, let's remember, yes, God is sovereign, but God works through means. God acted for Daniel in giving him a revelation for what God's plan would be for Israel until Christ returns again, the second time, in response to Daniel's prayer of penitence because of what he had read in the book of Jeremiah, that the nation of Israel is under discipline. God responded to Daniel's penitent, humble prayer. The great preacher Charles Simeon regularly found it his experience that humility was the key to seeing his prayers get answered. He wrote, 
you often feel that your prayers scarcely reach the ceiling. But oh, get into this humble spirit by considering how good the Lord is and how evil you are. Then your prayer will mount on wings of faith into heaven. The sigh and groan of a broken heart will soon go through the ceiling up to heaven. I even unto the very bosom of God. Paul was confident that the Philippians' prayers would be answered because he knew the heart of the Philippians. He had already described it in Philippians 1, 1 through 7, as their heart had demonstrated both in their gifts as well as in their concern that their interest was first and foremost about the gospel and its advance. And that's what gives him such confidence that their prayers are going to be answered. The other means of his deliverance, he mentions, is the help of the Holy Spirit. The word help means to supply the needs of someone, to give supplies to someone, to provide for them. Somebody has a need and you meet their needs. So how Paul expects the Spirit to specifically work in bringing about this deliverance, it's not stated. And in fact, I don't actually necessarily think he knows. I believe it's simply his way of saying, if you pray... The Spirit, in response to your prayer, will then help. His supplying is in response to their pleading. You call, He hauls. He supplies the needs. So it's, it's the response to prayer. The Spirit's moved to work because of prayer. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray. And we need to pray not in holding on to any sin, not in any presumption, not in any pride, not in any selfishness, but with humble, penitent, contrite hearts pleading for God to do a work. And when we do that, and it may not happen, he may not answer that prayer in 24 hours. He might wait 20 years. But that's the kind of prayer that he responds to The other reason Paul rejoices is that he's confident that he will not be ashamed. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So he he describes this confidence very interestingly as eager expectation. And there's really two words that are worth noting here. The word eager expectation means to look forward to with great anticipation. So think kids at Christmas. They're having a hard time sleeping because they can't wait to open their presents. There's this eager expectation, this giddiness, this excitement. Or Calvin, you know, two hours before he got married, right? This eager expectation, this longing, right? Or Richard or any of us brothers, right? We were just thrilled. Couldn't wait for it to take place. This eager expectation. Hope, also connected to this, refers to being confident that something is going to happen. So you have eagerness and at the same time, confidence. So putting the two terms together, it shows that Paul is both firmly confident and convinced that his greatest desires are going to be fulfilled. 
So to use the opening Christmas presents analogy, imagine the kid. Um, in fact, it's not hard for me to imagine. Um, and I'll tell you why. But imagine the kid who, wanting to find out what he gets, wants to get for, is going to get for Christmas, Everybody, he wakes up in the middle of the night and sneakily opens his Christmas presents ever so gingerly. And the reason I know that happens is because I did that, of course, when I was four. And uh, following the lead of my sisters, and they were really crafty because they're much older than I am. And they could peel the tape back and seal it up in such a way that nobody would ever know. Of course, as a four-year-old, I had no concept of sneakiness, except I just, so I just took my little Superman... Uh, sticker book that I had received and I was doing this in full daylight of everybody. I was just under the tree. It was in the middle of, you know, parents are kicking dinner. I'm there in the middle of the floor just, you know, put my Superman stickers in the book and mom and dad come out. And of course I get in trouble, but it was my sister's idea. But such as being the, the fault of being the younger brother, my fault. But like that kid who sneakily opens his Christmas present early to find out what he gets, he knows, he's confident what he's going to get now. But what's the problem? He doesn't get to use it. He sees he gets the Red Ryder BB gun that he's always wanted. But it's not Christmas yet. So he has this eager expectation and longing, but he's got to wait for it. That's Paul. He knows what's going to happen. He's confident it's going to happen. He's peeked at the gift. But he also knows, I've got to wait. He's got to wait before he can use it. And what he's confident in, particularly, is that he will not be ashamed. And the reason is because no matter what, he's confident Christ will be honored. Paul knows that as long as he's living for Christ, that Christ is the aim of his life, he has nothing to be ashamed about. According to the Bible, those who will be ashamed, there is reason to be ashamed. But Paul doesn't follow any of these reasons, and he knows it. Those who should be ashamed, for instance, are those who are ashamed of Christ and his words. As Christ said, whoever's ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. So to be ashamed of Christ and his words, that's what should bring shame. That's not Paul. Also, those who fail to rightly handle God's word. As he tells Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, that's what Paul's done. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, that those who fail to obey should be ashamed. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. And also those who fail to abide in Christ. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame at his coming. So what Paul's saying is, I know there's nothing in my life to be ashamed of because I'm not living for myself. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm living for him. And so even though I'm in prison, even though it looks like I'm guilty of something, even though there's people who mock me and ridicule me, have turned their backs on me because of my circumstances, I know before Christ that I have nothing to be ashamed at. And instead, rather than being ashamed of his circumstances, he has full courage 
The word for courage actually means to speak openly and in public. So it means to be bold. It means to be, to be open, to say what you think, so to speak. Your life is, um, you know, a, a house, a, a glass house, so to speak. It means openness and directness. It's the opposite of shame, right? The person who's ashamed wants to hide in the shadows, wants to get away, right? Those who love the darkness hate the light because of their works. They're ashamed. Adam and Eve, when, when they were naked, they were ashamed and they hid themselves, right? This is the opposite of that. It's being open on full display. See, rather than having something to hide, Paul says, my heart is on display. The reason that I've been imprisoned is because of my love for Christ. And I'm not at all ashamed of that. I'm here because I want to show how much Christ means to me and that he can save even the vilest sinner. The word he uses is honored. I want to honor Christ. The Greek word is megalonuo. And it means to magnify to demonstrate something's greatness. Now notice, he doesn't say, I have courage because I'm confident that I will be honored as I remain faithful. He's confident that Christ will be honored. He recognizes that he's simply the object that Christ's glory is shining through. His aim is not for people to stand up and applaud him. He just wants people to see Christ and to see pursuing Christ's likeness as the greatest pursuit that they could ever follow. That they would know him and the power of his resurrection, as he says in Philippians 3. As people see the life of Paul, it's obvious that Christ is so precious to him that everything else is considered as rubbish in Paul's sight. That's what he means. My life is a living testimony that Christ means more than anything else to me. Because that's why I'm in prison. As we know, Paul had many opportunities to avoid going to Jerusalem. As he says in Acts 20, every town I came to, it was prophesied, you go to Jerusalem, you're going to prison. Paul knew what was going to happen. But he went because he wanted to honor Christ. He trusted God's means. And this shows us that having a Christ-centered life doesn't mean that we just simply talk about Jesus a lot. You know, that, that we pray before every meal. You know, that, that we say, we just say we do everything to the glory of God. No, a Christ-centered life means that your whole life is bent on pleasing Him, on honoring Him, as he says in Philippians 3, on knowing Him. Christ-centered life means He is your life. Right? And that's why he says in verse 21, for me to live is Christ. And because of that, to die is gain. The, the phrase to live is Christ means to, it's to live for him in his service, in pursuit of him. In knowing him. Everything in life is, is directed towards getting to know him and helping others know him. And because he lives for Christ, death then becomes gain. Because think about this. If his aim right now is to know Christ 
and to rejoice in Christ and to make Christ known, he recognizes that death will, is just something that's going to enable him to do that to an even greater capacity. Because then he'll be unhindered by his physical flesh until he gets to the glorified body. He'll be able to do that to a capacity that he could never do in this life. Death is gain. So even death is not a threat, but it's a doorway into something better. Now we can't miss the reason that the reason that Paul felt this way about death is because of the way he viewed life. The reason he felt this way about death is because of how he viewed life. It's because to live is Christ that death was gained. Death is gained because it's simply a stepping stone to an increase of what he's already pursuing. It's an improvement. But, of course, this would not be the case if he was not living for Christ in this life. If the aim of his life was to pursue the things in this life, to get a healthier body, to avoid being dishonored, to avoid prison, to uh, gain a popular following, uh, to make money. If the aim of his life was that, Death wouldn't be gain because death would be stripping from him all that he wanted, all that he invested in. I mean, that's what's so horrible about death. It strips you from your family. It strips you from all of your investments, everything that you've done. Except one thing. Death can never separate us from the love of Christ. It likewise, anything that we've done, that's done for Christ in this life, that is will gain fruit. As Paul says um, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Therefore, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So if you're laboring for the Lord, that's not vain. So that and your relationship with Christ is the only thing that death cannot destroy. And so if you're not investing in those things, death is an enemy. It's not a friend. But if that's all you've invested in, death is a doorway to something even better. And this was Jesus' point in his parable of the rich fool. The fool who was wealthy and stored up all of his goods in barns. He says in verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And Jesus gives this parable. He's in love. Don't be foolish. Don't, don't squander your investment in a scam. A few verses later, he says, Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God wants to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, Jesus knows what he's talking about. He's not stupid. He tells us this not to be cruel. Not to be mean, not to 
not to prevent us from joy, but to keep us from squandering our lives so that at the end we would be devastated when death comes. He's, he's loving us in these words. And this is also why Christ warns us. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? So dying is only gain when one is living for Christ. And this is what Jim Elliot recognized, which is why he said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He got that phrase from Philippians 1. Likewise, C.T. Studd, the famous cricket player, became a missionary to China. He said, only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. He got that from Philippians 1. The third thing that this passage tells us about Paul is his, the tension that he felt, the constraint to both stay and minister to the Philippians and other churches and to depart and be with Christ. He continues to explain what he means in verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. So the idea being conveyed is is he feels tension between these two options. Even if the choice were up to him, he's not sure which he would choose. If he's released from prison, that would allow him to continue to serve the church by teaching and encouraging and admonishing. But if he dies... His greatest longings will finally be realized. So the tension is between staying and caring for others and then getting what he most desires. Both of which will honor Christ. So this is not like, you know, um, the good and bad. It's, It's two very good options. Which would he choose? And as I tried to think of personal illustrations to to convey the tension that Paul felt here, uh, wrestling with two difficult choices that are both God-honoring, I was reminded of a question that haunted me when I was a fourth grader. Again, I guess the other illustration was four-year-old. This is fourth grader. Um, The question uh, literally would keep me up at night and would fill me with dread. And it came to me after I had recently uh, became a Christian and devoted my life to Christ. And I looked forward to meeting him in heaven. And I believed, this ties to the question, I believed that when I uh, departed to be with Christ, came to, quote unquote, the pearly gates, you know, the fourth grader's understanding of what heaven would be like, I believed that he'd give me a sort of entrance exam. And this is the question that he'd ask me. It's kind of a, a test on if I should go into heaven. True story. Not that he actually asked this, but true story. I thought that he might. Clarity. He will never ask this question. But Joseph, you can enter heaven now and enjoy eternal life. Or 
you can switch places with all the people who are now currently in hell. And they can take your place in heaven while you endure their eternal retribution. And based upon how you answer that question will determine your entrance into heaven. And you can see the tension. Because in my heart, it's like, well, obviously, the heart of Christ is for other people. And I want to demonstrate that, but I don't want to go to hell. So, I remember one night, I was so agitated by the question that I couldn't stand it any longer. And I actually ran up into my parents' room, woke them up, and I said, Mom, 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 you've got to help me with this uh, enigma that I'm being haunted by. And my mom, half awake, simply said, I wouldn't worry about that, Joe. Jesus would never answer, ask you that question. And that was good enough for me. And I've never been bothered with that question ever since. Um, and so I went back downstairs and slept. And my point is not to, in telling you all this, is not to inform you of my neurosis as a fourth grader, um, but really just to, to point out the tension that Paul felt. Two very good options that would honor Christ. One will serve others. One will fulfill my greatest longing. He says in verse 23, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul concludes that it's actually going to be better. It's going to be God's will that he stay, that he gets released so that he can serve the church. And he indicates two particular ways. Their progress in the faith and their joy in the faith. Progress in the faith refers to this growth in Christian maturity, what theologians call sanctification. It's becoming more Christ-like. And so growth in the faith, it includes knowledge of what the Bible teaches, but also how to apply that knowledge, not just learning and becoming fatheads, but taking 1 Corinthians 8.1 to heart, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, taking that knowledge and actually being shaped into Christ's likeness, obeying what you read. He also serves them because he wants to increase their joy in the faith. Paul wants the believers not only to grow spiritually, but also to rejoice in the work that Christ has done in them, is doing in them, and will do in them. And so, it's important to recognize the progress in the faith and the joy in the faith. These two ideas are connected. As they progress in the faith, as they become more and more Christ-like and living for Christ, the more they progress in joy. As they learn to trust God more and more with their lives and die to themselves, then they will increase in joy. So even though things may look bleak for Paul, recognize he has joy. Why does he have joy? Because he has died to himself. His concern is not what people think of him. His concern is not his physical condition. If it was, the list of things that he went through in 2 Corinthians 11 wouldn't have happened. 
That's why he can rejoice. And likewise, the Philippians can rejoice knowing that God is accomplishing his purpose and that even more so, they're no longer his enemies. But children of the king, they're his servants. I mean, just knowing, just for us knowing that we're servants of the creator of the universe should bring us joy. I mean, that's joy enough in itself. But as we even grow of what that, under, what that means, and as we actually live out his instructions in our life, not being tied to the things of this world, that actually produces joy. So it's important to recognize joy is not just something, this, this thing that happens to us willy-nilly when we're listening to a song. It's, it's directly corresponded to our pursuit of Christ in our lives. But Paul knows that this is easy to forget. And so he desires to remain with them and to train them in order to help them understand how to keep that joy. He wants to see them both progress in their faith and then also to progress in their joy in the midst of these challenges. And likewise, this is the job of pastors and elders. This is God's God's job description of what I am called to do. That's why I'm here. This is my aim in all that I say, in all that I do, in all that I plan for the sake of this body and any other body that I serve. It's that you might progress in the faith and progress in joy. So I'm not here to lead a business or to help us grow financially, or in numbers, but to help you progress spiritually and to embrace the joy that's available to you in Christ. As Paul says, 2 Corinthians one twenty four, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. So I was thinking about how to illustrate this. Um, and I thought of food. Food is always a good illustration, it seems. Wives, why do you fix meals for your family, for your kids in particular? Because you don't want them to starve. I mean, that's the obvious, right? Because if you don't, they could starve. But it's not just that. It's because you want them to grow up. You want them to develop and become normal children. Not with malnutrition diseases. And sometimes, not always, you want them to enjoy it. And you also understand, if they don't eat, it's not going to take long where they're going to start to get grumpy and they're not going to have any joy in their life. They need to have food. They need to eat, even if they don't like it. I mean, just think about, I was thinking also of um, the Marines. When we would go out and do our drill weekends, um, the food that they give you when you're out on drill is MREs, not known for their wonderful flavor. Um, but every single one of those Marines would chow down the night before we had an eight-mile march because we'd have to go on these rigorous, because for them a march is not a slow walk, you know, and it's like walking through sand with a 75-pound pack, and, well, and the walk is like almost a run. It's, it's miserable. 
but, and, and because the Marines knew that's what's going to happen, they're going to build up as many calories as they can. There's like 4,000 calories in one of those MREs. It's just crazy. My wife hated it when I ate it, but she understood the reason. But likewise, all the NCOs, you know, they made sure their Marines ate their food. Why? Because if they didn't, they're not going to have any joy in a couple hours. They're going to be miserable. Likewise, we need food in order to progress in our joy, in order to develop, in order to accomplish God's will in our lives. And, and that's what he, essentially Paul says in verse 26. He desires that they may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, Paul's point is that the aim of his ministry is not that they would appreciate him more but that they would boast in Christ in his kindness to them all the more, right? He recognizes that as he returns to them, they're going to rejoice, not because of Paul per se, but because they know God is, or sorry, Paul is God's gift to them. With Paul's coming to them, he is the means where they are going to progress in faith and in joy. He is their gift and they will praise God on account of giving them Uh, returning Paul back to them. And this is why, even though he would rather depart and be with Christ, he's confident he's going to be released. Because he knows also God's love for them. He knows God wants to see them grow in faith, in the faith and in joy. So in summary, bringing all this together, Paul lives really for two things. He lives to serve Christ to proclaim Christ in the gospel, in his word. And then he lives to know Christ, to worship him, to grow in intimacy with him, to grow in dependence upon him. And this is why he can rejoice despite his affliction. This is where his courageous confidence and his joy comes from. The key to his joy in the midst of suffering is found in the aim of his life. So again, the joy is the result of the pursuit of his aim. He is joyful in the midst of horrific circumstances because his aim is to honor Christ. And likewise, if we want to possess this kind of joy, if we want to know what this is like, so that if we just lost everything and were thrown in prison, had no idea what the next thing, the next day be held before us, we want to have that kind of joy we need to be pursuing the same aim Paul is pursuing today. Because brothers, if it happens, and sisters, if it happens then, when the, when the, when the really painful tragedy happens, it's going to really be hard to get joy. If that's the beginning of our pursuit of Christ, of really taking his word seriously, of cru- being crucified to the flesh, so again, Paul's not telling the Philippians things these things in order to sound pious. He wants them to learn from him. Paul is sharing his heart because he wants them to see, brothers and sisters, this is why I have joy. It's not, it's not just because God looked down upon me and went, buzz, joy. It's the result of my pursuit. And I want to come back to you to train you in these things. I'll tell you about it right now in my letter, but I want to return to you and help you so that because he knows it's coming, Because when the affliction and the opposition and the persecution comes, I want you to stand fast. I don't want you to give up. I don't want you to make shipwreck of your faith. 
In fact, I don't, I, I don't not only want you to not make shipwreck of your faith, I want you to rejoice knowing God's sovereignty and knowing that God is accomplishing His glorious work. That's why He's sharing all this truth with them and with us. He hopes that we might learn from Him that the key to joyful Christian confidence is living for Christ. That's the key. Living for Christ. And you might think, well, I thought joy was the fruit of faith. I thought if I, if I just believed, just trusted, that's what brings joy. Well, yes, kind of. It is. But we need to recognize that faith is demonstrated not just in what we think, but in how we live. Right? We, I don't know why we do this. We're fallen, I guess is the answer. But we like to dichotomize faith of the mind and like faith of the life. Your life, your choices demonstrate what you really believe. Right? You can, you can say you believe that uh, Jonathan is a, you know, a servant of ISIS. But if you're willing to meet him in a dark alley, that shows you really don't believe that, right? Use the negative. I don't know why that came to my mind. Totally unscripted, right? Um, you might say you believe Richard you know, has $5 billion stashed away. But if that was the case, you'd probably want to become really good friends with him if you really believe that. Right? What you, your, your actions really demonstrate what you truly believe. Right? So if you believe your life, all of your life is about honoring Christ, that's going to be very evident in how you spend your money, how you spend your time, who you spend your time with. And it's going to be very evident when you come to die. The way we live our lives show what we truly believe. And that's why it's easy to assume that a lack of joy is the result of circumstances. But really, a lack of joy in our life isn't because something bad is happening to us. Because Paul had some pretty bad things happening to him. So did Joseph, right, in the book of Genesis. So did Jesus. The lack of joy is not the result of our circumstances. It's really the result of failing to live for Christ as we should. Right? If we lack joy in our life, I'll be the first to confess, brothers, this is I do, and you guys know me well enough. This is something I've been convicted. I need to grow in, but I can, but I can see the connection because I don't always live for Christ as I should. But man, I want to. I want to be able to say on that day for me to live as Christ and die as gain and not just be quoting a Bible verse but for that to really be the reality of my heart. And of course, this is why Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Christ tells us this, not because he's wanting to make our lives miserable, just the opposite. He loves us. He wants us to have genuine joy. And if that's what you want, there's really only one way to do it. Only one genuine way to do it. Let's pray. Father, you know all the different things that hinder us as a church, but I pray, I think specifically of us as individuals. What are the choices we're making? What are the lies we're believing? What are the ambitions that we're pursuing that actually are hindering us from 
living and enjoying and rejoicing in what Paul lived and understood and rejoiced in. And Father, I pray that you would even now speak to each one of us individually. Bring things to mind that we need to repent from or change or add into our lives. And God, we recognize we need to progress in faith. None of us have arrived. None of us have this kind of joy. We need to progress. And so I pray that you would help us know how we can. That we would take advantage of all that you've set before us. That we would not, in pride and ignorance, ignore what you've given us. Even if it means suffering. But rather that we would, with bold confidence, take advantage. Help us to see these things, God. We, we, we confess that we are blind to so much. And we, we think far too highly of ourselves than we should. And so, Spirit, minister to us that we might think rightly and then live rightly so that you would be honored. We ask none of these things so that somebody would pat us on the back and applaud us, but because we want to honor you with our lives, because you alone are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. For from you and through you and to you are all things, because of what Christ did for us. And nothing at all are we worthy of. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.